You know, we are people for whom living by faith is a fight to the death, isn't it? Living by faith is a fight to the death. It's really, really hard to live by faith, and I dare say that it is actually impossible and can't be done without the power of God. That's why Paul tells us, tells Timothy twice, for that matter, fight the good fight of faith. Living by faith is a fight. It is war. It is a bloody battle and fight to the death. It's really hard to live by faith. And the reason for that is precisely because of the fears that relentlessly assault us. Fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of failure. Fear of being alone, fear of pain, fear of death. The opponent of fear is brutal and stubborn, and it is the most talkative sin with which we struggle. Is it not? Fear never shuts up. The inner hypochondriac of the soul is always, always talking. We are the most toxic people to our own lives because of the fears that we tell ourselves. And because of the fears that we believe. Because on the surface, fear always sounds persuasive, doesn't it? It seems like it gets the facts right. It seems like it's got a good case. And yet the problem with fear is that all it is at the end of the day is unbelief. Fear is unbelief. It's incompatible with faith. Faith and fear, you understand, are the great oil and water of the Christian life. Because you see, from a biblical perspective, fear arises in the soul when we don't view life through the lenses of the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. One writer put it like this. Faith in God removes fear from the heart. And when we rightly consider who God has revealed himself to be in his holy word, we find that the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. All courage to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but from a clear perception of true reality, namely, that every moment of life happens by God's decree. This is exactly right. We must fight the fire of faith with the fire, fire of fear with the fire of faith. And the reason I'm talking about faith and its arch enemy of fear is because the people of Judah, you understand, they were crippled by fear. They were crushed in a crisis, and in this crisis, they had a choice. They could live by faith, or they could live by fear, and they couldn't do both. In this crisis they were in, you remember from last week, this was not a laughing matter. This was not a small, petty thing. The beast of Assyria was coming from the east. Two wicked kings were about to invade from the north. Both were stronger. Both were bigger. Both had the power to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the planet. The promises of God, you understand, were hanging in the balance. And so the nation looks to the king to lead them and tell them what to do. The problem is the king is not a man of faith. He is a man of fear. Politically savvy, but spiritually stupid. 
the king pulls a maneuver so dumb that it would jeopardize the entire existence of his country. And so what does God do? But in his mercy, send Isaiah the prophet. And what do prophets do? They preach. And what they preach is not soft serve, low calorie, sentimental nonsense. No, they preach red meat, black coffee, hit the gym five days a week theology that changes the world and makes grown men tremble. That's exactly what Isaiah does. Because see, Isaiah understands that the cure for fear in the soul is not to think less deep about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. See, to make it to the 21st century, or any century for that matter, we need a God who will not apologize for his sovereignty. We need a God whose legs will not buckle under the crushing weight of evil and sin. We need a God who is willing to look us in the eye and say to our face that all of the earth-shattering forces unleashed into the world are unleashed by him. We need a God who sends Assyria to crush his people and then crushes Assyria for crushing his people. And that's the kind of God that Isaiah gives us because that's the only kind of God there is. And let me just tell you a little something about Isaiah chapter 8. There are no inspirational posters or artwork anywhere in anyone's home with a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. There has never been a wedding or baby dedication in the history of the world that has ever said anything from Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah 8, there's not one word about marriage or parenting or finances or friendships or how to deal with kids who stray from the faith. There's no verses about conflict resolutions here. But in this chapter, there is a God supreme and sovereign who governs everything that comes to pass, and that is the comfort we need to strengthen our faith. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three responses, three fear-killing, faith-sustaining responses in a time of crisis. That's where we're going, three fear-killing, faith-sustaining responses in a time of crisis. And the first response is this. Number one, you must trust in Emmanuel, not in your circumstances. You must trust in Emmanuel, not in your circumstances. Because again, in Isaiah's day, there was a crisis. And it was really, really serious. So serious, in fact, again, that the entire fate of the country hung in the balance. So it seemed. And that's a real problem because that means the promises of God are hanging by a thread. The, the, the very promise of God to send the Messiah through the line of David is hanging in the balance. Think about it. If all the descendants of David are murdered, there is no Messiah and all the promises of God come crashing to the ground. And again, you know from last week that this crisis that sent the whole country into panic and alarm and lockdown is known as the syro Ephraimite War. The Syro-Ephraimite War from 734 to 732 BC, that is the storm cloud that loomed over the land. 
And all it means is that Assyria is blowing up the Middle East, expanding their kingdom at light speed. And at this moment, they are headed due west. To Judah in the south, Ephraim or Israel in the middle, and Syria on the top all in a row because Assyria wants it all. And on their own, you understand this, neither country stood a chance. Combined? Maybe. Maybe. And so the plan is Syria and Ephraim join together, and their plan is to invade Judah, kill Ahaz, put a king of their choosing on the throne, unite the three kingdoms together, because maybe that is enough to keep Assyria from taking over everything. I seriously doubt it, but that's the plan. So here's tiny little kingdom of Judah caught in the middle with nowhere to go. Assyria is coming from the east. Two wicked kings are about to invade from the north. Their entire existence hangs in the balance. And so what does King Ahaz do? Clever politician that he is, you remember from last week, he paid the king of Assyria. He, he pays Assyria. To come get Israel and Ephraim, uh, uh, Israel and Syria off his back to invade them and crush them. The very thing he was already going to do had Ahaz not paid him to do so. And I can imagine, I can imagine the king of Assyria's response when he hears the letter read by his official from King Ahaz. Wait, he said what now? He, he wants me to do what now? Are you serious? Quick, cash the check. Cash the check before he comes to his senses. Because it was ridiculous and nonsensical. And the reason for that is because it was a decision driven not by faith, but by fear. But you remember chapter 7, Yahweh in his mercy sends Isaiah to prophet to, the, to reassure Ahaz that despite what it seemed on the surface, God was in control. The wicked kings and their plans would come to nothing. The promises of God were still intact. Yahweh was ready to intervene and deliver his people in a supernatural way. And all Ahaz had to do was ask. It seems kind of weird, but that's how it worked back then. Yahweh led his people through the king. And you remember from last week, Ahaz threw it all away. And you think, that's, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. To which I reply, I know, it is crazy. It doesn't make sense. But remember the curse. Remember the curse from chapter 6? God would put a blinding curse on his people so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. He would dull their hearts, disable their ears, and blind their eyes so that they couldn't believe. And this is what that curse looks like. Here is the effect, the defiance of Isaiah and his Ahaz and his delusional decision to not trust in Yahweh is a manifestation of the curse. And so what chapter 8 is, you understand is the decision of Ahaz played out and revealed. Chapter 8, the whole point of the chapter, is to unfold the repercussions that the entire country would have to face from Ahaz not trusting in Yahweh. And we'll see what those repercussions are, but I want you to notice first the little episode that happens in verses 1 through 4. Look at the text. And Yahweh said to me, take for you a great tablet. 
and write on it with a stylus, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, swift to the plunder, hurry to the prey. And I will appoint for me faithful witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Yeverkiah. And I approached the prophetess, and she conceived, and she bore a son. And Yahweh said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the son knows to call my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. I know that sounds weird, and it is a little weird, but it is also gripping and profound. Look again at verse 1. Yahweh has a little assignment for Isaiah. That's called an art project of prophetic events. Look at the text. Yahweh said to me, take for you a great tablet and write on it with uh, literally a stylus of men. It's a writing implement. Write on it, swift to the plunder, hurry to the prey. Apparently, it's craft time for the prophet. And you understand, you know this, the prof prophets are oftentimes called to do bizarre things in public. As, as a sign of what God had planned for his people, you remember that Ezekiel, for instance, was called to cook bread over human dung. Ezekiel was also called to shave half of his head and half of his beard and scatter the shavings to the four winds as a picture of exile. Jeremiah was called to wear an old, filthy belt that had been buried in the dirt. Hosea was called by God to marry a prostitute because that's what God had done with Israel. One time God made Isaiah walk around for three years naked as a picture of what would happen to Egypt. And all of these theatrics, you understand, the street theater were very public acts to get the people's attention and grip them with a message. And that's exactly what this is. God sends Isaiah to the ancient version of Hobby Lobby to get a giant clay tablet large enough for everyone to see from a distance and into the tablet carve the words, swift to the plunder, hurry to the prey. Then he's to hang up that billboard for everyone to see. The question is, what does it mean and what is the point? Well, here's the question. Under what circumstances do you think someone would say, swift to the plunder, hurry to the prey. Where would you say that? Who would say that? I don't know, pirates, maybe? Plundering? Pillaging? An invading army that just stormed the gates? And guess what? That's exactly what this is. It was a vicious, bloodthirsty battle cry that invading soldiers would shout to one another as they invade and destroy and plunder a city. And the question is, who would be invaded, destroyed, and plundered? Who was going to hear that vicious, bloodthirsty battle cry? But there's more. Before we answer, notice Isaiah was not only told to make a giant billboard with the phrase, he was also told by God to have another kid and then give that kid the exact same name as is on the billboard. Look at verse 3. And I approached the prophetess, and she conceived, and she gave birth to a son. And, he called, and, and Yahweh said, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I mean, you understand that when Yahweh called someone to be a prophet, their whole life was on the altar. You know that, right? 
Everything was at Yahweh's disposal. What you ate, how you dressed, if you wore clothes at all, who you married, and even what you named your kids. As a prophet of Yahweh, your life was not your own. And I just want you to know, it is no different for us. We are not prophets, and we don't have to give our kids funny names. But in Christ, our lives are not our own. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And you see, Isaiah understood that. And this power couple, Isaiah the prophet and his prophetess wife, they got pregnant, had a son. Nine months later, they did exactly what they were told, and they named their son Swift to the Plunder, Hurry to the prey, the exact same phrase that was on the billboard. That'd be like naming your kid Fire in the Hole, or There She Blows, or Remember the Alamo. What's the point? The point is this, verse 4, look very carefully at the text. For before the boy knows to call my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And you see it, don't you? Damascus and Samaria were the capitals of the two kings from the north who wanted to kill them. And so the point of Isaiah naming his son this was that it was a prediction, it was a guarantee that the, that the work, that the plans of the kings of the north would come to nothing. Do you see? In less than a couple years, even before that kid learns how to speak, the pirates of Assyria would plunder and ravage and destroy the two kings from the north who were trying to invade them. And so should anyone encounter Mr. and Mrs. Isaiah in public pushing a stroller with their kid? And should anyone say, oh, how cute, what is his name? In that moment would be a message proclaimed to the undeserving people of God that despite what they deserved, God would deliver. Exactly like he promised Ahaz in chapter 7. Just a few years' time, that's exactly what happened. And maybe you think, well, that's great. That's interesting. That's intriguing to be sure, but that, that's got nothing to do with me. I mean, what does what a prophecy predicted and fulfilled 2,700 years before I was ever born have anything to do with my life today? And that's an interesting point, except, except for the fact that prophecy predicted and fulfilled is a reminder to us, get this now, that every other promise of God is a thousand percent reliable. But you see, Isaiah chapter 8 and passages like it is collateral. It's collateral that gives you the undeniable guarantee that everything God has ever promised you is so certain that the only logical response is to live radically for Jesus Christ. But you see, prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled, frees us to be holy, to suffer hardship, to fight greed, to be sacrificial, and to proclaim the gospel no matter the cost to our own lives. Why? Because in the end, God still wins it all. The outcome remains unchanged. That's kingdom logic. That is the power of prophecy. And you can imagine the people would be thrilled. Finally, finally, we're safe. Finally, we're in the clear. Starting now, life goes back to normal. 
except it doesn't. It doesn't go back to normal. It's a little too early to break out the champagne and celebrate because Isaiah warned Ahaz at the end of chapter 7 that if he trusted in the king of Assyria and not Yahweh to deliver them, that Assyria was going to turn on them and eat their little country for breakfast, which is exactly what Isaiah predicts again in verses 5 through 8. Look at the text. And Yahweh spoke to me again, saying, because, literally, because this people reject the waters of Shiloh, which flow freely, and rejoice in, or rather, over Retzin and the son of Ramalia, those are the two kings from the north, therefore, the Lord will bring on them, that is, on the people of Judah, he will bring on them the vast and mighty waters of the river Euphrates, the king of Assyria, and all of his glory. And he will go up over all of its banks, and he will go over, over, up over all of its channels, and he shall sweep into Judah, and he will storm the land, and he will pass through it, and he will reach to the neck, and it shall be a stretching of his wings filling the breadth of your land. Oh, Amen. I know it's a lot of moving parts, but you could totally tell the people of Judah, yes, they would dodge the two bullets of the kings of the north only to be blasted by the cannon of the king of Assyria. And notice, look at the text, using rivers and, and streams as analogies, notice God's main complaint there in verse 6. He says, because this people, notice, reject the waters of Shiloh, which flow freely, and rejoice over, it should say, over Retzin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, the Lord will bring on them the vast and mighty waters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria. So, do you see God's main complaint? Why is he angry? He is angry because the people of Judah has rejected the waters of Shiloh. What is that? Well, what that is was a local nickname for God. Shiloh, we understand, was this little creek, this little stream that ran by Jerusalem that supplied the water with its city. And after a while, that little creek stream became a euphemism for the help of God himself. That river, like God, could be depended on when you need it. And yet to have rejected the waters of Shiloh was another way of saying that they had done what? They rejected God himself. We don't need God anymore. The king of Assyria will bail us out of our little jams. He would neutralize the threat of the kings of the north. And so Isaiah was wrong. Ahaz was right. Trusting the king of Assyria was a great, great idea after all. So what? So what that you had to break the bank to pay for his protection? So what that the monthly payments would cripple the economy? At least we're safe now. Yeah, but except you're not, though. You're not safe, not even in the least, because look again at verse 7. Therefore, the Lord will bring on them the vast and mighty waters of the river Euphrates, the king of Assyria, and all of his glory. And, and he will go up over all of its banks, and he will go over all of its channels. Do you see what Isaiah does there with the rivers? The people viewed God like a little gentle flowing stream, very peaceful, but they viewed the king of Assyria like the mighty Rio Grande. And yet, unfortunately, that river would overflow the banks and almost destroy them. 
And notice, notice in verse 8. And I want you to notice something very peculiar, very strange, very odd, very thrilling. I want you to notice grace there in verse 8. Look very carefully. And he will sweep into Judah, and he will storm the land, and he will pass through, and he will reach even to the neck, and it will be a spreading of his wings filling the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. Do you see it? The grace and kindness of God there in verse 8. Two manifestations of the grace of God. Number one, notice, notice the carefully chosen language describing the future invasion of Assyria. Notice, they would sweep into Judah. They would storm the land. An army would pass through. Here it is. And they would reach even until the neck. You know what that is? That's grace. That's grace. You know why? Because the language up to the neck indicates that Judah would almost, but not completely drown. It would be really close, but God would spare them. God would, at the last hour, just before the buzzer, miraculously, supernaturally intervene and save them from being obliterated by the king of Assyria. And when we get to chapter 37, one day we will see what Yahweh did, but notice the second display of sovereign grace. This is incredible. Number two, did you notice at the end of the verse, who does it speak of? It speaks of Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Verse eight, get this, is a prayer and lament addressed to Emmanuel. Do you see that? He will sweep through the land, through your land. Oh, Emmanuel, do you see? This is a prayer addressed to the Messiah. You remember chapter 7, verse 14, predicted that the Messiah would come born from a virgin. He would be God himself because Emmanuel means God is with us. I said, do you see what Isaiah is doing here? This is grace. This is pure grace. In addressing the prayer to the Messiah, he is giving the people of assurance, the people of Judah, the assurance that the invasion of Assyria would not annihilate them. He's giving them the assurance. Why? Because this is Emmanuel's land. These are Emmanuel's people. And his future arrival, listen carefully, on the scene of history would guarantee that this looming threat from Assyria would not bring total destruction. The Davidic line would be saved. A remnant would be spared. And his future arrival in the, on the pages of history in the future would guarantee that every covenant promise God had made would be fulfilled. That's why in verse 9, Isaiah mocks and teases Assyria. Look what he says. <laughs> Take your best shot. Do your worst, Assyria, but you're only going to be shattered. He goes on in verse 10, devise a plan if you want to, but it'll come to nothing. State a proposal if you wish, Assyria, but it will not stand. Why? Why will the plans of Assyria not come to pass? Look at the end of verse 10. Why? Why will the plans not come to pass? It says, because God is with us. Do you know what that is in the Hebrew? Emmanuel, the Messiah. Do you see the implication here? 
the entire hope of the Christian life and even the fulfillment of the entire plan of salvation itself hangs on the shoulders of a child who is God, who became a man, who lived and died, and when he died, he died for sinners, but rose again triumphant, and it's just a matter of time before he comes again, and when he does, he will bring his kingdom, and you and I will live happily ever after. And so the point, the point of all this you understand is, we must trust in Emmanuel, not in our circumstances. What I mean is in a world of fear and darkness and uncertainty, which you know very well is the world in which you live, where it is filled with things that you can neither predict nor control, the question is, do you hang on to the only sure there is? Do you have the weight of all of your hopes? Hear me now. Do you have the weight of all of your hopes resting on the one who alone can bear them? Do you believe that everything in our lives that is sad and warped and twisted and ruined and broken and mutilated will be turned for good at the end by Emmanuel? Either now, temporarily, or finally in the future forever, when Christ returns, he will bring paradise back to the earth, and having that hope, you see, sustains us with the hope and the joy we need for the present. That's the first response. The second response in a crisis is this, number two. You must fear Yahweh, not the unknown. You must fear Yahweh, not the unknown. Because we are, aren't we, a people who are insanely good at playing the what-if game. You ever play the what-if game? I know you have because we all play it. And the thing about what-if questions is that they're not necessarily wrong or evil. Sometimes asking what-if questions help you be wise and plan for the future. However, many times, most of the time, the what-if questions are nothing more than practical unbelief. A failure to remember that God is in control. What if my kids get sick? What if I get sick? What if my kids never come to know the Lord? What if my spouse dies? What if harm befalls my children or grandchildren? What if I lose my job? What if gas prices keep going up? What if my state turns liberal? What if my kids make bad decisions and ruin their lives? What if I never get married? And like a thousand other what-if questions exactly like them. And none of those questions are bad necessarily, and I suppose they're worth asking at times. It's just that all those what-if questions are all about things that you can't predict and you can't control. And in those moments, hear me carefully, in those moments, we have a split second to decide if we are going to live by faith or if we're going to live by fear. And in a very personal moment between Isaiah and Yahweh, recorded for us to hear, Yahweh challenges his prophet to not be like the people around him who were absolutely gripped by fear, not by faith. Look at verses 11 through 13. 
He says, for thus says Yahweh to me, according to a with mighty power, he instructed me to not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call a conspiracy anything this people calls a conspiracy. And what they fear, do not fear, nor shall you dread. Rather, you shall treat Yahweh of hosts as holy. He shall be your dread, and he shall be your fear. Now, it takes a bit of a detective's eye, but I want you to notice those very first words there in verse 11. Look very carefully. For thus says Yahweh. For thus. What does that mean? It means, listen very carefully, verse 11 is the logical inference from verse 10. In other words, something, or should I say, someone just mentioned in verse 10 should have a practical effect on Isaiah's life. Who was mentioned in verse 10? Emmanuel. The Messiah, the virgin-born God made flesh who is coming in the future. He was mentioned. What this means is that the future arrival, achievements, and kingdom of Emmanuel are so certain and guaranteed that it should produce something in Isaiah's life. There are certain sins and proclivities that should be removed from his life because of Emmanuel. What? What should be removed? Fear. Fear, terror, panic, being crippled by the what-if questions of life that we can neither predict nor control. Because look again at what Yahweh says. Because of Emmanuel, Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me to not walk in the way of this people. Don't be like your people, Isaiah. Don't be like them. Don't do what they do. Because what do they do? Look at verse 12. Do not call a conspiracy anything this people calls a conspiracy. And what they fear, do not fear, nor shall you be in terror. And you see it, don't you? These people were gripped by fear. They were terrified. Absolutely terrified. All the what-ifs about Assyria and Ephraim and, and, and Syria and their future crippled them into an echo chamber of fear and despair. And the result of that is that they were constantly engaged in what God calls conspiracies. And that doesn't mean conspiracy theories. Rather, what that is are the what-ifs. Those are the fear-laden speculations about what may or may not happen to them. Do you know those? He means the panic-driven conjectures about all the things that may or may not happen to them. Do you have those? As if Yahweh was not sovereign, or good, or kind, or powerful, and had loved them with an infinite love that had already planned their destiny. That's what this is. They got all bent out of shape about what could happen because they forgot about what will happen, namely that Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come back as a thief and he will take back the planet that's rightfully his. Satan will be slaughtered. Death 
will be defeated, paradise will be restored, and all things will be as they ought to be. And therefore, God says to Isaiah, don't get sucked into their fears, Isaiah. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread what they dread. Don't be in terror of what they are in terror, because all their fears and their dreads and their terrors grew like mold in the soggy basement of a soul that forgot that God was in control. My question for you this morning is, what are your what-ifs? What what-if question did you ask yourself today, this morning, sitting here? What are your conspiracies? That is your fear-laden speculations about what may or may not happen to you. The real question is, who has a louder voice inside your head fear of the unknown or the sovereign good powerful kind supreme and infinitely loving God who has already planned your destiny because look at the alternative to fear Look at the opposite of panic-driven conjectures about what may or may not happen to us. Instead of fear, God says, verse 13, you shall treat Yahweh as holy, and he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. You see the alternative to fear? The alternative to fear uh is fear. Fear and tremble before God as the treasure of the soul. Are you hearing this? Look at what he says, Isaiah, instead of fear, you shall treat Yahweh as holy. What does that mean? What does it mean to treat Yahweh as holy? It means very simply that you see him for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. It means that the towering majesty of God becomes the interpretive lens through which you understand the world and everything that happens. It means that who God is is so real to us that who he is determines what we think and what we do in the secret moments when no one is watching. That's what it means to live by faith. The question is, is that where you are? Do you treat Yahweh as holy? Is the splendor of his majesty the interpretive lens through which you understand everything that is transpiring in your lives at this very moment? The sickness in the body, job on the line, the ache in the soul, the president in the White House, the money in or not in the bank, the ache in the soul, don't you see? Don't you see faith in God removes fear from the heart? And when we rightly understand who God has revealed himself to be in his holy word, we find that all the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. All courage to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but from a clear perception of true reality, namely that every moment of life happens by God's decree. And you understand, let me just level with you here. It's not that you can't be afraid. I mean, God is not asking you to 
handle the trials of life with a Zen Buddhist poker-faced indifference to the curveballs of life. That's not the point. The point is, is that we have the unshakable conviction that God reigns and that our lives are safe in the hands of Emmanuel. Look at the end of verse 13. He, God, God will be your fear. God will be your dread. I love that. We need that language. Because I know, I know that dreading God is not typically a way we speak about God. But what God means here is not that he is a monster, but that he is majestic. He means that our thoughts about God should be so lofty, so supreme, so holy, so exalted, so majestic that all other dangers and threats to our lives are petty and small in comparison because they are. And when that happens, when we dread God, look at the result in verse 14. When we fear God instead of the unknown, look at the first part of verse 14. It says that God will be a sanctuary. Do you see that? What does that mean? It means that when you fear God, he will be a quiet refuge of delight. That he will be a sovereign asylum of eternal security. That he will be a haven and shelter in a world of fear and destruction. In other words, it sounds cheesy, but the bigger the thoughts about God that you think, the less into fear and despair you will sink which means, yes, more scripture meditation, less social media. I'm serious. More theology, less political talk shows, way more riveted study of Christ, way less time in front of a screen, especially when it's on the news. Because you understand, you understand the more news that we watch, our theology will begin to bend. I would say beware of pretty much the steady diet of any news feed on the planet because after a while, our theology will begin to change. We will fear what they tell us to fear. We will think what they tell us to think. We will believe what they tell us to believe. We will call a conspiracy what they tell us to call a conspiracy. And when that happens, we are not living by faith, but by fear. And the results of that are disastrous. Look at verse 14. Look what Isaiah says would happen to Israel as a result of not fearing God. He says that God would become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the two houses of Israel, a, a trap and a snare to the people dwelling in Jerusalem. I mean, you can totally tell, can't you? This is a warning. It's a warning. And the warning is, listen carefully, the warning is the attitude we take towards God will determine what aspect of him we experience. I'm going to say that again. You need, to, you need to feel that. The attitude we take towards God will determine what aspect of him we experience. In other words, if you treat God as holy, he will be a sanctuary for your soul. But if you don't fear God, and you walk in the ways of the world, and you try to live a life of God ignoring independence on your own apart from him, 
Mark my words, Isaiah says, you will find God to be extremely unpleasant. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a trap and a snare to your soul. You run from God and it will be the most terrifying and miserable experience of your life and of the next. The question is, the question is, are you running to God or are you running from God? Are you running to God or are you running from God? Are you like the people of Judah pursuing a life of God, ignoring independence? Trying to satisfy your soul with the banquet of the world's delights because I just want you to know it will not work out and it will not last precisely because of Emmanuel. He will ruin your plans. He will destroy everything you have ever worked for. If you try to seek a life of significance and satisfaction outside of him, he will ruin those plans. But you run to him. And he will be a sweet haven of rest to the soul, a sovereign asylum of eternal security. He is the child who is God, who became man, who died for sinners, who rose from the dead, who rules the world, and he's coming back to build his kingdom. Today is the day to yield. Which brings us third and very quickly, response number three. Response number three, in a time of crisis, number three, you must hope in God's word, not in mysticism. You must hope in God's word, not in mystical experiences. Because, you know, many professing Christians in the church, they are confused about what it means to live by faith, don't they? Confused. They're not sure what this means, and you can tell because of their proclivity to crave and to run to mystical experiences. They want to hear a little voice. They want a divine visitation. They want some angelic manifestation of the supernatural to give them a little boost. They want the zap of the supernatural to keep them going. What they want is tangible proof of the love and presence of God. And that's fine. That's fine. But if Isaiah were here, he would simply say to them, go to the law. Go to the testimony. Go to the word of God. Because that is where the love and the power of God are found. And he does say that in the very next verse. Look at verses 16 through 18. He says, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. But I will hope in Yahweh. I will wait for Yahweh who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children Yahweh gave to me as signs and omens in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on the mountain of Zion. And I know it doesn't look at here, but this is actually a very vulnerable moment for Isaiah. You see, there were other believers around him. There weren't many, but there were some. And notice in verse 16, he calls them my disciples. He calls them children that God has given to me. In verse 18, 
I think who these are are the few and the faithful who had not abandoned Yahweh, and yet with the crushing weight of the people's apostasy and the coming doom and demise coming upon them from Assyria, Isaiah pleads on their behalf that they would not drift from the word of God. That's what he means in verse 16 when he says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among, literally, in my disciples. And you see the two words there for God's word. There is testimony and there is law, what God has declared, what God commands. And notice what he prays about the word for his disciples. Bind up the testimony, seal the law in, in my disciples. And what he's praying for them, get this now, what he's praying for them is that the word of God would be the immovable anchor in their souls. That it would be wedged and anchored and, and sealed in their hearts. Why? Because to have the scriptures is to have access to God himself. You remember the story of King Arthur, right? And the enchanted sword Excalibur was sealed in the stone and could be removed by no one except by King Arthur. And Isaiah wants the opposite of that. That the sword of the word of God could not and would not be removed from their hearts. That the disciples of Isaiah could not and would not drift, nor wander, nor deviate away from the scriptures. Why? Because Isaiah understood, he knew that the word of God is not just a piece of literature. It is a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. You understand that, don't you? You see, we want the voice and the visitation and the experience and the supernatural to keep us going. And Isaiah says, look to the text. There is the voice. There is the experience. There is the visitation. Because in, in the text, God is always there to meet us. To comfort us and to strengthen us and to encourage us and satisfy the deepest longings of your soul." question is, the question for you this morning is, do you daily drive the wedge of the word of God deeper into your heart? And I don't mean merely reading, but I mean a kind of desperate, urgent reading that hangs on every verse like a branch that has great fruit for your soul. Almost done, hang on. Although typically not prone to reveal how he feels and What's going on? Look what Isaiah says in verse 17. He is just clinging to God in urgent desperation. I will wait for Yahweh who hides himself from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. And not just he alone, but verse 18. I and the children that Yahweh gave to me as signs and omens in Israel. From Yahweh of hosts who dwells on the mountain of Zion. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying that despite how hopeless things appeared on the surface, that he would persevere in hope, and not just he alone, but his disciples with him. And notice what, I, what Isaiah calls his disciples, these, these children. He calls them signs and omens. You know what that means? That means this tiny little group of fellow believers were a gift and a sign from God to Isaiah that all hope had not been lost. That, that the plan of God would come to pass. 
These few believers in his life strengthened him in faith and mediated hope to his soul, which is exactly what relationships in the church are to be like. I mean, what is fellowship? To be signs and omens to one another that God has not abandoned us. What is Christian fellowship? But to mediate the comfort and hope of the living God into one another's souls through and with the word. How many Sundays do we show up distracted and discouraged and downcast and depressed and defeated and sometimes even teetering on the brink of despair? And yet God has given us to one another as signs and omens to persevere, to hang on to Christ another day. So what I'm asking you, what I'm asking you, pleading with you to do is to be intentional, to be deliberate, to be thoughtful, to be disciples in need of hope, helping disciples in need of hope. That's what I got Isaiah through the darkest of times. That's what will get us through the same. And most, most people in Isaiah's day had zero interest, were almost done, had zero interest in God's word, which means they had zero interest in God himself. Look at verses 19 and 20. And when they say to you, seek the spirits of the dead and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, shall not a people seek their God? Shall a people seek the dead instead of the living? What's the answer? No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't seek mystical experiences outside the pages of Scripture because in our sin and our desire to find God will cause us to seek those experiences, to travel on pilgrimages, to listen for voices and perform rituals and seek cosmic revelations when there is already 66 iron-wrought books and a thousand pages just waiting to give us God in Christ. That's why Isaiah yells in verse 20, to the law, to the testimony. Go to the sacred text because it is not helpful. It is the help itself. Notice the warning at the end of verse 20, and it is a warning. If this people will not speak according to the text, it is because they have no dawn, which means they are steeped and trapped in spiritual darkness and need to be saved, and the chapter ends bleak and dismal, but not so, not. Not unsurprising. What's coming in the future for the faithless, verses 21 and 22, was distress, darkness, despair, and disaster, which means soon Assyria would be on their way and soon they would storm the gates. And that's a crisis. And yet Yahweh has shown us. The living God has shown us, has he not, how to respond in a time of crisis. We must trust in Emmanuel not in our circumstances. We must fear Yahweh, not the unknown. 
And we must hope in God's word, not in mystical experiences. That is how we fight the fire of fear with the fire of faith. That is how we win. Oh, Yahweh, we are thankful for the obscure, for the unknown texts, the previously unseen texts. We didn't know that in the secret caves of Isaiah 8, oh Lord, that there would be such rich gold for us to enjoy. Oh Lord, and we struggle with fear. We don't know the future. We can't predict what will happen. We can't predict or control what, what will happen to us, what is happening to us, but you can and you do. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to be a people who live by faith, that we would be a people who cling to you with urgent desperation, that we would be a people who look not beyond what you have revealed, but we would cling to what you have said, what you have spoken, what you have revealed, what you have declared, what you, what you have promised to us. Oh, may we be a glorious text-centered people hanging on to your promises. Oh, to be a people who are rich, not merely in theology or doctrinal fidelity, but may we be a people whose blood courses with the veins, of, our blood courses with truth. We need you, Lord. We need your help. So we look to you to work in our lives always and only for the glory of Emmanuel in whose name we pray.